Well, a few months ago, my wife Donna got into a car accident. It wasn't her fault. Uh, someone actually pulled right out in front of her, and she couldn't stop in time, and so she rear-ended the person, uh, and the impact was so great, airbags went off, and she smashed the whole front end, and, and while she was really rattled about the whole thing, and especially, and, and if you got in a car accident, maybe you felt this before, uh, she was really rattled about just going back out on the road again, and just, you know, hopefully she wouldn't experience something like that, because it's kind of a traumatic deal, but thankfully, she was okay. Well, the next day, we're having a conversation about her accident, and uh, we're kind of talking about how she's still feeling, uh, you know, a little afraid about stepping out on the road again and just, you know, experiencing that, and so there's all this fear and all that stuff. Well, as a part of the conversation, somehow it transitions into the fact that when we're on vacation, I never put her down as an additional driver uh, when we rent a car. And so uh, she's just going, she's talking about it, and she's like, hey, I just want to know, how come you never put me down as an additional driver? And I'm like, oh, it's just not a big deal. I just forget about it, you know, and all that stuff. She's like, no, 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 you never put me down. Uh, how come you don't put me down? I'm once again brushing it off. Not a big deal, honey. Not a big deal. Nothing to see here and all that stuff. And finally she goes, she goes, no, no. Why don't you put me down? And I said, you, you really want to know? And she said, yeah, I really want to know. I said, well, okay, here's the reason. I just don't think you're a very good driver. And... Uh, <laughs> And so all of a sudden, you know, I could just see the look of disgust and disbelief on her face, you know, and uh, so then I realized, you know, because I'm a perceptive guy, uh, I've dug myself a hole, and then I, do, I did what most guys do at this time. They try to dig themselves out of the hole, but they dig a deeper one, you know, at the same time. And so I'm like, well, honey, you know, your eyesight's not that great, and your drift on the highway, you know, and your action time's not that, not that quick and all that stuff. Let me just say, when we go on vacation this summer, she will be a driver on the rental agreement. Now, the truth is, sometimes our choices bring regret. And I think a lot of times those are, are they a real small scale, like, you know, what I said and when I said uh, what I did to my wife, Donna. Uh, but there are small scale, all sorts of things. You, know, you go to a restaurant and you order the wrong thing. You go to a movie that you thought was good and it's really bad. I mean, how do you mess up Batman versus Superman? But somehow they messed it up when you think about it. You know, you're going someplace and uh, you're like, okay, which way do I go? Do I go on the highway or do I not? You take the highway and it's bumper to bumper traffic. You know, these are, these are things that are bad at the time. They bring regret, but in the grand scheme of things, they're pretty small. However, there are many things that we do that they're not a small thing. It is a big regret. You buy the wrong house. You quit your job at the wrong time. You take a prescription that leads to an addiction. You have a fight with someone that you love dearly and some words are exchanged and the relationship because of those words never recovers. Or you make a decision and there were all sorts of red flags on the front end. I mean, people were saying things, you knew about the red flags, but you went through with it anyways and now you'll live with the consequences of that decision for the rest of your life. Our choices bring regrets, and some of those regrets are big regrets, and we try to learn how to live with those regrets. Now, the thing about regrets is that none of us plan on it. You know, none of us stands uh, in front of our future spouse on our wedding day and says, you know what, I think I'll have an affair. I think I'll make some decisions that'll mess up both of our lives. None of us have a little baby, and we hold that little baby in our arm, and we say, oh, I'm going to raise you to be so codependent that you'll never be able to live without me. I think I'll raise a rebel. 
You know, I think I will be so harsh and so controlling that it'll mess you up emotionally and you'll be in counseling for years just to recover from the whole thing. You know, and none of us, we never set out to be addicted to anything, but every day addictions destroy lives. You know, none of us set out for any of these things, yet they happen all the time. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Now, today we're continuing in our series, Flawed, the Making of a Hero, and the big idea we are moving towards as we go through the series is this, is that God wants to take flawed people, which is good because every one of us, religious or not religious, we all come in here and we're imperfect. We're flawed. We know that, which is good because the ending is great, and turn them into people that will make a difference with their lives. And throughout this series, we are looking at a real-life story. And uh, this person that we are looking at, and you might not be a religious person or a Bible person, but you probably heard of the story. We are looking at the life and story of David. Maybe you heard of him as King David or, or you know, uh, David and Goliath. Uh, but we are looking at his story. And what we're discovering is, is that David did some amazing things. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at some of those amazing things. But David was very flawed. In fact, nothing, uh, no, no more evidence of this than what we're going to look at today. Now, and here's where we kind of pick up David's story. David is, we're in the second part of his life. He is at the height of a brilliant career. He's been king for 20 years now. The people love him. I mean, his approval rating in all the polls is above 90%. And he has never lost a battle. He is undefeated. He's expanded the kingdom. He's expanded it financially as well. He's brought spiritual renewal into everything. But it's at this point David's story takes an unexpected turn. And I'll be honest with you, for some of us, when we hear what we're going to talk about today, it's going to make us feel uncomfortable because we're living in a season of regrets right now. And it might make some of us feel uncomfortable because we're choosing to continue to do things that we know is hurting ourselves and it's hurting those around us. Now, as we've gone through this series... One of the things that we've discovered is, is that our story very much intersects with David's story. This is also true with this part of David's story. And the good news is, is that we're going to see that there is hope for David, and that same hope is available to all of us as well. So here's what the writer says as we move into the second part of David's story. He says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. Now, now Joab is one of David's main commanders his military, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, he remained in Jerusalem. Now, David has just turned 50 at the time. And uh, David looks in the mirror one day, and he's like, oh, man, I'm 50, you know. I'm not the old man yet, but I'm not the spring chicken I used to be anymore either. And so David decides that he's going to get in shape. He buys a treadmill for the palace, you know. He starts using just for men, and he goes out, and he buys a red Corvette convertible, you know, so he looks cool as he's driving around Jerusalem and all that stuff. And so, you know, that's about kind of his time of his life. Now, after the last 20 years as king, every spring he would go out with all the other kings and he'd be successful in battle. But now he's distracted. Now he's a little bored, so he decides not to go. And here's the thing, in not deciding to go, it wasn't like David was thinking, you know what I'm gonna do? I think I'm gonna take a nap, and then I'm gonna get up, and I'm gonna check some emails, you know, and then I'm gonna go take a shower, and then I think, you know what I'll do? I think I will make a decision that'll have devastating consequences on the rest of my life. That's not what he thought. But here's what David didn't realize. Sometimes, that can happen when we're successful. 
And this is a great reminder for all of us, you see, because we, don't, we aren't the most vulnerable to making bad decisions when our life is falling apart. In fact, I think this is the time of our life when things are falling apart that we are most likely at some point to turn to God. We're most vulnerable to making bad decisions after our greatest successes. When life is really comfortable, when life is really good, this is exactly what's happening in David's life. And then the writer continues and said, hey, one evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And so, so back then, they would make the master bedroom in the palace. It was on the second story. And then the roof of the palace was just kind of this flat, it was a flat roof and stuff. And so they would make it into a patio and they would put patio furniture uh, up there and all that stuff. So David can't sleep. And so he gets up and he's kind of walking around uh, on the patio when he turns and he sees a woman bathing. Accident, right? Not really. You see, there was a certain time of the day that women would bathe. This was that time of day. And so David, he gets up, and, and when women would also bathe, they'd also have this privacy uh, thing around their, around so they, nobody could see that they were bathing. And so David gets up, he's on the roof of the palace, he looks at this woman, he knew he shouldn't look, but he looks anyways. Plus, the palace was up on, the, was up on a hill, everything else was below, so he knew when he looked exactly what he was going to see. And then the writer adds this little twist in there. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> she's beautiful. And so when the writer was saying this, the writer is trying to drive home the point, and the point, is, the point is not she has a great personality. The point is she's stunning. And then David sends someone to find out about her. And so he sends one of his servants to find out about her because it would look obvious if David went because he traveled with an entourage. And then it says, the servant said... She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, when they would write or give genealogies back then, they would always give the genealogies in relation to the father. They would never give genealogies in relation to the spouse. So why does David's servant say it to David in this way? Well, let me give you the answer to that by giving you an illustration. When we come to a traffic light, there are three colors, all right? Now, I'm going to test to see how uh, in tune you are with these three colors, all right? So when I point to it or say it, you say what that color means. What do you do when you pull up to red means, green means, yellow means? says a whole lot about why I experience what I experience when I leave this place on a Sunday morning right there, you know? <laughs> so yellow means yield. And so what happens with yellow, some of you are like, oh, I didn't know that. You're taking notes right now. That's great. So yellow, so, so yellow, so some of us, we pop to yellow. Some of us, we hit the brakes and we stop real fast. Others of us, when we see yellow, we hit the accelerator and we go real fast. Now, as we see what's happening in David's life at this moment, he has come up to, at this point, two red lights. The first red light was he's on the roof taking a walk, and he knows he shouldn't look, but he looks anyways. The second red light 
was his servant. You see, the servant knows exactly what's da what David's thinking. And so he's trying to get his attention. He said, hey, David, she's someone else's wife. And then if you put the verse back up, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, David knew exactly who Uriah the Hittite was because Uriah was part of what was called an elite protection group for David. There's 37 men that were just a part of the elite of the elite. They were the mighty men of the king. Uriah was a part of that group, so David knew Uriah. Plus, you know what else we know about Uriah the Hittite? He was a Hittite, not an Israelite, which meant he left his people and his culture because he was loyal to protecting the king. So as Uriah is away fighting for the king, the king stays back and is trying to sleep with his wife. You know, as I was, was writing this message, I was hoping that for some, this would be a red light moment for some of you. Because for some of you right now, you're in the process of making a decision, and this decision is going to have devastating consequences on your life. And some of you, you've already made that decision. And this would serve as God just saying to you, stop. And it would be this red light. And with the red light, we have a choice. We can hit the brakes, or we can hit the accelerator, and we can fly right through it. Well, here's what our guy David does. So then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. Then she went back home. This is probably the most understated verse in all the Bible. David comes up to the red light, hits the accelerator, goes through, and he sleeps with her anyways. And David nor his kingdom would ever be the same again. Well, a few days later, David gets an unexpected message. And here's what the message is. It said, well, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Words that David never thought about when he was having his one night stand. And we don't need Maury to tell us who the father is, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and because of that, David goes into a mode that we all go into when we try to hide something. Cover-up mode. But here's the problem with cover-up mode. We never make good decisions when we try to cover up. This is why cover-ups never go well long-term. But David ignores that, and he goes into cover-up mode. And so he sends a message to Joab, his commander, and he's like, hey, I want you to send Uriah back from battle. I want you to send him to the palace. And so Uriah comes to the palace, and he stands in front of David, and David's like, uh, hey, man, uh, how are things going out there? And Uriah, this is an uncomfortable conversation because Uriah knows something's up. He's going like, why wouldn't you send for one of the commanders? Why are you talking to me about this whole thing? And so Uriah's like, man, I, things are good, I guess. And, and so David goes, hey, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to go home and relax. And what he really means is I want you to go home, sleep with your wife, because then it'll make it look like it is your kid. So Uriah leaves there. And instead of going home, he decides he is going to sleep out at the palace gate with all the other servants. And David finds out he is livid about the whole thing. And so he calls Uriah back, and he's like, dude, what are you thinking? Go home. And Uriah looks at him and goes, listen, I can't go home and sleep with my wife knowing that all my men are out there fighting. And so Uriah leaves, and David's like, okay, i got to come up with another plan. And so he comes up with another plan to cover this whole thing up. And so he invites Uriah over for dinner that night, and he's going to get him drunk. And so he buys him a 12-pack of his favorite beer, Spotted Cow. And so Uriah, Uriah, we find out, has more integrity when he's drunk 
than David does when he's sober because he leaves that gathering. And once again, instead of going home, he sleeps out of the palace gate with all the other servants. Well, this time David goes into panic mode and he comes up with another idea to cover it up. And his idea is he's going to write Joab, his commander, a letter. And so he writes, hey, dear Joab, I want you to put Uriah on the front line. And then when the battle is the fiercest, pull back from him, implied, so he dies. Sincerely, David. And he seals the letter, and he gives it, gives it to Uriah to give to Joab. He gives Uriah his own death sentence to carry back with him. How sick and twisted is that? Well, Joab, he does what he's told to do because you always do what you're told to do when the king tells you to do it. And Uriah dies. And Bathsheba, well, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And so David, he marries Bathsheba, and he looks like the hero to everyone because he brings the widow into the palace. And it looks like for David that his cover-up has been successful because nobody knows. But there's two problems with all this. The first problem is people can count to nine. And so when Bathsheba has the baby, they're like, one, two, wait a minute, that doesn't work out properly. That's the first problem. The second problem is, is what he can't cover up. And that is, he knows, and God knows. You know, for some of you, you're in the process of covering something up right now, and you think the cover-up has, has been successful. It's like, it happened, but nobody knows. But here's the thing, you know, and God knows. God knew about what David was doing, and he knows what you're doing as well. Well, David holds on to the secret for over a year, and he thinks God's overlooked the entire thing, but eventually God begins to in intervene in David's life. And here's how he does it. It says, then the Lord sent Nathan, and oftentimes how God will intervene is through another person. God sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, Nathan said, hey, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. Now, Nathan is so smart. He's just not going to go to David and confront him or what he did. I mean, David has just killed an innocent man covering up the whole thing. Nathan's going, I ain't risking my life for that, you know? And so what Nathan does, this is so smart. He presents this as like a court case seeking David's advice. He says, hey, David, hey, there was this rich man, and he had all this cattle, and he had all this sheep, and there's this poor guy. And this poor guy, he just had one little family lamb. And this lamb was so precious to the family. I mean, they would let this lamb in their house to eat meals with them. This lamb would drink out of their same cups. This lamb would sleep on their lap. I mean, this lamb was like part of the family to this family. Well, one day the rich guy throws a big party and he's having a cookout. And he knows he needs to kill a lamb to feed everybody. And so he looks at his and he's like, nah, I don't want to take one from mine. You know what? I'll just go over there and take my neighbor's lamb. And see, so he goes over there and he kills the little precious family lamb. David, what should I do about all this? David burned with anger against the man. I mean, David, he cannot believe someone would do something like that. 
And then it says, he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. That was my emphasis, by the way. <laughs> and, da and David, here's the thing. It's like he did, the guy did something bad, but it didn't deserve death, you know? But David overreacts. And in his overreaction, we see that David is not in a very good place. Now, Nathan, Nathan then says something to David that David never expected to hear in this whole conversation, completely blindsides him. He says, oh, by the way, David, you're that guy. Hey, David, you're the man. And Nathan goes on to say, hey, God has blessed you with so much, and he would have blessed you more if you asked him to. Uriah, all he had, all he had was Bathsheba. You took her. You killed him. Hey, David, you are that guy. Now, let me ask you, what poor decisions have you made that makes you now live with regret? You know, for some of us, we have told a series of lies to someone very close to us. And now that relationship is built on those lies. And if those lies ever came out, you lose that relationship. You know, for some of you, it's work. And you've, you've engaged in a series of transactions where you've cooked the books. And if anyone ever finds out about those things, it would ruin you. You know, maybe it's prescription meds. And you needed them at one time medically, but now you don't need them medically. You need them. But now it's because you're addicted to them. And you've been lying to people. You've been, say, you've been telling them you've been getting them from doctors. But the reality is, you aren't getting them from doctors. Now, I know most of us live in the suburbs. And we do our very best to portray an image that, that everything is great, that we're good, that everything is perfect and all that. But deep within our homes lies the same problem that David had. And maybe it, takes, maybe it takes the look of an affair or pornography or business trips going wrong. Or maybe it's inappropriate online relationships or inappropriate work relationships. But the problem is sexual impurity. And all of us are impacted by it. Odds are, I would bet that you have been imp impacted by it in some way. In the neighborhood that we live in, and we've lived there for about 12 or 13 years, just, just a few things that have happened in our, in our neighborhood, unfortunately. Uh, one household, uh, there was an affair that happened. They tried to make it work. They couldn't make it work. Uh, one family fell apart because of a porn addiction. Uh, another family, someone in the house, uh, one of the spouses just said, yeah, I think the grass is greener on the other side. I'm leaving. I'm leaving my family. And they just left their family to fend for everything. And that is only in the last few years, and that's not even half of what's going on. Maybe this is the regret right here that you wrestle with. Now, the good news is, with God, it is not the end of the story. You know, with David, when all this happened, when, when, when Nathan said, you're the man, he probably felt like it was the end for him. But it's not the end. And you know what? You may feel like it's the end for you as well. But with God, it's never the end of the story. In fact, it's actually the opportunity for a brand new story. See, God didn't approach David to condemn him. He loves David. So you know what loving people do? They confront because he wanted to redeem him. And the same is true with any one of us. You see, there's nothing that we have done that is beyond God's redemption. One of the things that, that our family has, has loved to do over the past uh, year or two is we love to find a, a series on Netflix, and then we just like to, as quick as we can, just kind of watch through that, that, that series together. 
And, uh, you know, what we'll do, we'll pick certain nights, and we're like, okay, you know, get your homework done by this time. I don't care how you do in school. Just get it done so we can watch this, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then with that, we have certain traditions that we do. So it's like, you know, we always pop popcorn, and we always pop like three bags of it, you know. And, of course, I get the most because I tell everybody I weigh the most. And uh, so we have popcorn. And then when we get done with all that, we all have like our certain seats, and we, you, we sit in the same seat. Like I lay on the floor in front of the TV and then one of my sons lays next to me. And it has become such a, such a tradition that we have this, this cat, he's 24 pounds. I mean, he is a fat bugger, you know? And um, I'm the only one in the house that cares that he's fat. Everyone's just letting him eat himself to death. But he comes in even during some part and he just sits on the end of the futon and he watches, you know, while, while we sit there and, and do the whole thing. And so, you know, we watch the whole thing. What I have noticed is that most of the shows that we choose they have this redemption theme that's just threaded throughout the whole thing. And I don't know if you know this, as you kind of look at a lot of the TV shows, even the well-known shows. Redemption is a very popular theme. Now, here's what redemption is, really. Redemption just means this. It's atoning for a fault, mistake, or sin. It's, here's what I've done that I now regret. Here's what do I need to do to atone for, to literally, to make up for what I've done. Now, do you know why redemption themes are so popular in shows and in our culture? We can all relate. Whether you're a religious person or you're not a religious person, we can all relate to the need for redemption. And here's why. Because we know we've all done things that we need to atone for or to make up for. And so we all ask this question, but just in our own way. How can I make up for that? What do I need to do? A better way of asking that question, I think at least, is to ask it in this way. How do we move from regret to redemption? And the great thing about David's story is he gives us the answer to this. And it's found in really two things if we're going to make that move. You know, the first thing that David did is he came clean before God. You see, God sees and knows everything. But our tendency is, and this always surprises me because it's mine as well, we think, well, God will never find out. He doesn't see, he doesn't know, he turned a blind eye, so to speak, but he knows. And the redemption process doesn't start until we start here and we come fully clean before God. Now, what's cool about David's story is that David actually writes about what his life was like and what he was experiencing during the cover-up time of his life. One of those times is in Psalm 32. And listen to what he says. He's so descriptive. He said, blessed is the one, blessed, happier, better is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there's no deceit. In other words, when there is nothing to hide in my life, here is what it feels like. And then he describes what he was experiencing during the cover-up time. Listen to these words. He says, hey, when I was covering it up, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He was like, man, I, I couldn't sleep. I was losing weight. I was sick, I felt alone, I felt far from God. I mean, life was miserable. And you know what? The same thing is true with us. I mean, on the outside, we act like, it, like nothing is wrong, but when we're trying to cover things up, there's always something wrong because we live with the constant fear that eventually that's going to come out. But then David, he transitioned, he's like, all right, so everything changed when this happened for me. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, God, and did not cover it up. 
anymore. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So everything changed when David came clean before God. And he said, this is not for God. God already knows this is for us. It's when we go, okay, God, here's what I've done. And I need your forgiveness for it. Now, the truth is, some of us, we've done this. But we still can't shake the guilt and the shame that we feel. And I think a big part of that is, is that there's a lot of confusion around this whole idea of, of confession. And so, here are a couple things that we need to keep in mind as we come clean before God. You see, confession, it doesn't remove responsibility. You know, for some of us, we confess just to kind of free ourselves of guilt in, in, in the short term. So we feel like the freedom to continue to doing what we're doing uh, right after that. But confession doesn't remove responsibility. Confession is about the willingness to change. So when David went confessed, he was like, okay, God, here's what I've done. I'm coming clean before you. And with your help, I'm not going to do this anymore. So true confession implies a decision to change. Now, here's the other thing about confession that gets confusing. It doesn't remove consequences. You see, the truth is, some of our decisions, there's going to be a fallout. The marriage may not make it. The business might go bankrupt. That person that you apologize to, they may not accept that apology. You still might end up in jail. But if we want to experience redemption, we come clean before God, even if the consequences aren't removed. You know, this is, this is what happens with David. The rest of his story, the rest of his story is marked by the tragedy of this event. Now, even though his confession didn't remove the consequences, here's what his confession did do. It restored him to God. Notice in that psalm, he's like, blessed. It's like the weight has been lifted. That weight was so heavy. That has been lifted. It was like, hey, this is how I felt far from God. All of a sudden, my relationship with God was restored again. And here's the cool thing that David discovered, that even though there were consequences, he invited God into those consequences, and God worked in the middle of those consequences. See, David discovered this is a new beginning for him, and it can be for you as well. So how do we move from regret to redemption? Begins with coming clean before God, who already knows anyways, and then here's the second one. Come clean to others. Now, for most of us, this is the hardest part. It's like, okay, Mark, I can do the come clean before God. He's invisible. I don't have to look him in the eye. But the thought about, the thought about coming clean to that person or people, I've, oh, man, Mark, I don't know about that. I don't know if I can do that. Now, James, the half-brother of Jesus, here's what he wrote about this whole idea. He says this. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. Yeah, but James, I've already confessed it to God. James would say, I know, that's step one. But we have to take this next step and confess what we have done to the people or person that we have wronged. And then he says, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Well, James, what are we healed from anyways? We're healed from keeping that secret inside of us so long. And we're beginning the process of healing from the brokenness that has caused that in the first place. I love how Pastor Andy Stanley, he, he kind of brings these two ideas together and the importance of these two ideas to experience redemption. He says it this way. 
He says, hey, forgiveness comes from God. In other words, we have to be willing to humble ourselves before God and come clean before him. That's when that weight is lifted. But the freedom aspect fully comes, healing comes from coming clean for others. We know the person that we have wronged. We've got to be willing to come clean by sitting down with them. Here's what I've done. I'm sorry. Would you be willing to work through a forgiveness process with me? Now, some of you are like, hey, Mark, that'll, that'll destroy or hurt the relationship. Listen, it's already hurt. And the reason it's already hurt is because authentic relationships are built on honesty and that other person is living a lie. We have to take this next step and come clean to others. A while back, a very close friend of mine, uh, it had come out that uh, he, he, had a, he had a certain addiction that was just wrecking his family and was, was wrecking him. And he came clean, he brought it out, and uh, it, it just, I mean, it caused a huge mess in his family and, uh, and in his life as well. And I can remember when I found out about it, because I was completely blindsided by the whole thing. I mean, I was just devastated by it. I felt like someone had socked me in the gut, and you know how eventually you kind of get that feel and then it goes away? Uh, I just feel like it didn't go away uh, for about two weeks. Well, he decided to go to a recovery treatment center that lasted about two weeks. It was very intensive. And then after he got back, he, he and I decided uh, we were able to have lunch together. And so we sit down for lunch, and one of the first things he says is he says, Hey, Mark, I have wronged you. Please forgive me for what I've done. I am truly sorry. And I said, But I, I mean, I love you. I mean, I, you don't need to do that. But he did it anyways. And then we started talking about being away at this recovery center and what that was like. And he began to describe it for me. And he said, you know, we spent uh, the first part of the time that I was there. And it was just like coming clean before God and coming clean to myself about all the things that I've done. He goes, now that was hard, but let me tell you where it really got hard. Then we had to go through a process. I had to go through a process of coming clean with everything that I had done before my wife. And he says, but here's the thing. He said, redemption doesn't happen until full disclosure happens. He just talked about the pain of that whole thing. And then I asked him, I said, what was that like when that all came out? And his answer surprised me. He said, when I, when I, when I brought it out, he said, I was ready to bring it out at that time. He said, the weight of carrying that lie around for so long just got so heavy. I couldn't sleep. I mean, it was just too much for me to handle. I was ready for it to come out and begin to deal with the consequences of my decision. And then we, when we wrapped up the lunch, he said this to me. He said, I, I've got a long way to go. I don't know how a lot of this thing is going to turn out. In fact, the consequences are pretty severe. It's probably not going to turn out good. But God is doing something in my life that I have never experienced before, and I never want to live without it again. And I walked out of there, surprisingly, with some hope. And my hope, it was more of a reminder that God's best work are redemption stories. And redemption is not about what sin we've committed. Redemption is about the response we have to the sin we've committed. You see, David's scandal, it had it all. I mean, it had lying, it had cheating, it had adultery, it had abuse of power. Many people feel it had rape mixed in there as well, because Bathsheba, when the king sends for you, married or not, you have to come. You can't say no. 
So David's scandal had it all, but so did his response. And as a result, God continued to use this very flawed person in really amazing ways. Now, some of you may not know this. The baby that they had together, based on that affair, died. But David and Bathsheba had another son. Another son. And you know what his name was? Solomon. And Solomon became the next king of Israel. He replaced, was the successor to his father. And then they had another son right after Solomon. Does anyone know what his name was? Nathan. Nathan. The person that God sent in in his life to confront him with what he did. And then a thousand years later, one of Jesus' disciples Matthew. And Matthew's story, it was very David-like at this point in his life. Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote the genealogy of Jesus. And understand, when they would write genealogies for people, they would try to make them look as good as possible. Here's what Matthew writes, writing Jesus' genealogy. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the chosen one, the son of David, our flawed hero the son of Abraham. And then he includes this. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. And then look at this little thing he adds here. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Matthew, why would you include the darkest, most hideous point in David's life in the genealogy of Jesus? Because Matthew wanted to remind us that God takes stories like that and makes them a part of his redemption story. He did it for David, and he wants to do it for you if you let him. But you have to be willing to begin the process of coming clean before God and then coming clean before others. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And then as I pray, I know some of you, you come in here and there are things that you've just covered up and, you know, you've hidden, maybe buried for so long and they've come back up again because you've forgotten about them. You're like, oh, great. I came to church. Thanks. This is great. You know, uh, but they're there. They're there. And I want to challenge you to begin this process of redemption for you. And for some of you, you're in step one and you need to come clean before God. And so as I pray, you're just going to be honest with God about exactly what you did and ask for his forgiveness. He's waiting for that. But for some of you, you know that second step, but you've been putting it off, and so you're going to leave here. And my challenge for you, as you begin praying about it now, then you do something. You have the conversation, and you come clean that other person. Let me pray for us. Father, um, we all come in here and can connect to this story in some way. First off, God, um, we've all made decisions where regrets are attached to them. We all have done that. And God, there's a part in all of us as well where we feel the need and the desire for redemption. Maybe we don't call it that, but the idea is the same as well. And I thank you that you have included this story with David and Bathsheba as a way to point to us, as, as dark and as awful as it is, as a way to point to your redemption and your desire to do that in our lives. God, for some of us, uh, it's going to start with just being really gut honest with you. You already know, but this is for us. We own it, God. Here's what we've done, and we ask for your forgiveness for that, but God, there's others. There's a lot of secrets. There's a lot of things that we've covered up, 
and we've just said, I'm not, I'm not going to tell that other person because, but God, we're going to take the step and we're going to have that conversation in humility and in love and in grace. Father, for those conversations that'll happen, we don't know what the result's going to be, but we do know that you, if we allow you to be, you will be with us in the middle of all this. May we be a community that does not settle for cover-ups ever, but that we get to experience just the power and the grace of your redemption in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody, thank you for coming, and we'll see you next week for Flawed as we continue it. <laughs>